What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, of course, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today, we are finally continuing with a series that we left off with back in episode 10 of Inking Out Loud. And no, you didn't mishear me when I said that. I said episode 10, because after three years of waiting, we are jumping back into Dave Wolverton's acclaimed Rune Lord series. With book five, Sons of the Oak. And I have been having an absolutely phenomenal time settling back into this world. I cannot wait to hear Drew's recap, if only because it takes me two or three minutes closer <laughs> to the end of the episode so I can jump right the back into the book. I can't even get my words out enunciate. I'm so excited. Drew, will you please tell us what's happened so far in book five between chapters one and 22? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I got to say, it's funny. Um, and I just want to clarify for any listeners who may be confused. Rob said Dave Wolverton's Rune Lord series. Uh, on oh, the book cover, sorry. it says David Farland. David right. Farland is a pen name for Dave Wolverton. I, Same dude. I yeah. totally forgot. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. But yeah. So the fifth book of David Farland's or Dave Wolverton's Rune Lord series, or more properly, the first book in the Scions of the Earth subseries, yes. opens nine years after the events of Lair of Bones. Gaborn Val Orden. The Earth King has had two sons, Falion and Jazz, who are out on a ride with Sir Borenson and their guards when two momentous things happen. First, they discover a group of young girls who have been raped by monstrous creatures called Stringy Sots, or Strong Seeds, and they save the lone survivor. The second is that Gaborn himself dies. The forces of evil, under the command of the Locust Asgaroth and doing the bidding of Shadoath, Close in immediately. Falion, Rihanna, Jazz, and Borenson flee to the relative safety of Castle Quorum, where they perform emergency surgery to save Rihanna from the eggs inside her. A strange Sot attempts to break into her room, but Falion chases it off with a torch. Asgaroth appears outside the walls with an escort of powerful rune lords demanding surrender, and reveals that he has tortured and impaled some of the most important people in Mystaria, including Duke Paldane but is driven off after Falion commands the soldiers to shoot at him. With Borenson, Merima, and their family, Iome brings Falion, Jazz, and Rihanna to flee the castle through a secret underground river. The chase is on as Chancellor Waggett, the very same Waggett who won fame during the First Battle of Karis back in Brotherhood of the Wolf, breaks the siege and Asgroth's forces hunt down the princes. Iome and Merima manage to kill Asgroth's host and drive off the air elemental within, and Murama realizes that it was none other than Prince Kelinor Anders, and that Rihanna is his daughter by Aaron Connell. The group continues on to the Courts of Tide, where they hire a ship to take them across the sea to the mythical country of Landisfallen. Aboard the ship, the captain plans to betray the princes, but Falion begins winning him and the crew over to his side. On top of that, one of the crew is a flame weaver and reveals to Falion that he himself is also a flameweaver, with the soul of an ancient figure called the Torchbearer. After Rihanna kills the treacherous crewman Streben, the captain allows Falion to join him as his cabin boy, and all the while, they're heading further out to sea, where the pirate captain Shadoath awaits. And Streben gets exactly what he deserves. <laughs> yeah. But little Humphrey doesn't, and yep. I'm a little pissed Poor off Humphrey. about that. But we'll talk about that. Yeah. First, <clears throat> going into style, I need to express first how much fun I've had reading this book so far. And it's worth okay. mentioning, like, 
as I said at the top of the show, you know, the previous books in this series, we covered for some of our first episodes ever of Inking Out Loud. And yeah. terrible as my memory already is, as well as the fact that I literally haven't returned to them since. I, you know, I jumped back into book five here this week in, into Rude Lords with only vague impressions of what's happened in the first volumes. And I'm not kidding when I say there were several main characters about whom I remembered nothing. <laughs> and I, I ended up somewhere around chapter five, I think it was, giving up. I was like, all right, I have to go back and read some more plot summaries for the previous books to refresh myself on what it was I wasn't remembering. And holy crap, what a trip down memory lane that was. <laughs> I read, Drew, I just read through the summary of The Sum of All Men, just the first book. Yep. Reading about Raj Otten taking the battle with only one arrow spent. Oh, yeah! King Orden and his warriors in their serpent ring trying to take down the tyrant himself. Oh, yeah! Like, everything starts coming back. And I'm like, oh, my God, this was the book I read? You know? <laughs> and I think, uh, with a little more introspection, I think it has to do with the, the incredible amount of life stress I was in at the time. Like, I had just mm. started a new job. When we started this podcast, it was that cannabis packaging job oh, that yeah, I talked yeah. about previously. That's so right. my life at that point was all about security clearance and biometric scans and being locked in high security vaults for eight hours at a time, you know, learning new faces and adapting to new people. I was wearing lab coats and hairnets every day, trying to smuggle in Bluetooth wireless earbuds so I could listen to Ray Porter's dulcet tones, talk about the Rune Lords, you know. Um, I had just started a new podcast. I think we were trying to trying to trying to find our footing for the podcast back then as well. So it made for yeah. a very unsteady and kind of nervous, scary part of my life. I wasn't I don't think I was able to fully appreciate the beauty, the wonder, the spectacle of these books at the time. <laughs> there is but a lot of wonder and spectacle. Oh my God, am I appreciating the crap out of it now, especially just coming out of Lowtown, which we'll get into later as well to compare. But this <laughs> prologue, I know I want to start with this prologue. I'm not done ranting yet. Sorry, everybody. I'm going to be ranting about how much I loved this book so far. <laughs> Asgaroth sent his consciousness across the stars past nebulae of flaming gases. Everything about that prologue, Asgaroth, Shadow Eye, this new deep center of the universe building threat that knows our characters and speaks of them familiarly. And I'm just like, I fell in love with this book on page one. <laughs> like the fact that Wolverton chose to end that prologue, that ominous scene with the Earth King Gaborn settling setting down his wine and feeling vaguely disturbed as he feels that evil large enough to weigh lace to an entire world. That may be the best single prologue I've ever read. It's just, <laughs> mwah, I'm starving for this kind of fantasy. Old words, after, yeah. After after being stuck in Polanski's Lowtown trilogy for six f***ing episodes, like, I've had enough of this dark, gritty dude in a dark, gritty city handling all kinds of dark, unsavory politics. F*** off to the ends of the earth and farther <laughs> with that shit. Give me more of this. Yeah, Big this is a very different kind of book. World-building uh, threats. Oh, deep magic coming alive. Just, ah, yeah. this book is so good so far. I love it. Sorry, you can you can take it from here. Yeah, I, I, it sounds like you probably don't remember, but you know, way back when we did uh, Lair of Bones and we finished the Earth King series, and and you know, I was asking you how you felt about you know the the series overall, like an and you're like, you know, I I enjoyed it, but there were things I wanted more of, and and you specifically said you're like, I want more of this stuff about like the loci. I Did want I say more that? About yeah, and I was like, how do you? Oh boy, you're gonna. I don't like even remember the... the loci being a thing. How do you remember me talking about the loci? Yeah. How good is your memory, dude? Wow. <laughs> uh, I do have a pretty good memory. God damn, um, bro. 
it's gotten worse over time, but I do still have a pretty good memory. Anyway, I, I remember telling you, I was like, <laughs> yeah, dude, if, if, and when we get around to oh, the, the second series, you're going to be really into it. Yeah. You have very distinct thoughts in that moment. I can see how you, yeah, I didn't like, have a foundation upon which to build there. Good. Yeah, okay. and, and this is, this is kind of my first style point. Uh, there is a marked tonal shift or maybe thematic shift in this book as compared to the first four where the first four, yes, Gaborn's the earth King and we have, you know, the elemental magic, but so much of those four books is focused on endowments and Mm. rune Lords and force soldiers and blood metal and rivers. And and it's, yeah. And it's, yeah. The, the only reason that Gaborn can win isn't because he's necessarily the earth King, but it's because he's got like, thousands of endowments that he's being given while he's fighting the one true master. And, uh, and then here immediately we're told this isn't going to be about endowments anymore. Borenson doesn't have endowments anymore. Iome's got the most and she's dead. (laughs) You know, Murama's still around, but she doesn't do a lot with her endowments in the early going here. She's using her, her water magic. Yeah, and Valion and Jazz—they don't have endowments. Mm. They have the opportunity. All of them have an opportunity to take more endowments oh, before they leave love, the castle, and they all decline. Basically, I love how it's such a point of conflict for Iomi too. Whether she yeah. like she wants her children to have all these better ways in which to protect themselves, but also signing them up for a life that is so much shorter and more violent. So right, oh. and and now we do have a a gun on the mantle in the form of. Um, Falion's inheritance that he's got hundreds of forcibles mm. that are on the ship with him now and and obviously something's going to happen with those forcibles at some yeah. point but just don't think it's going to be but that's not it. the focus like the focus is about the deep magic it's about the elemental magic and this and the loci and the netherworld and the sons of the oak and this phenomenon that's uh, yeah. permeating the world and just all oh, this deep universe magic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, <sighs> so good. big, big shift. And that is, that is not going to go away. You know, that that's what, that's what the rune Lords is about now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, so I was very excited to see if I would be correct in my prediction that you'd love this. And I'm glad yeah. and so also- far that's the case. Sweet, sweet. And I also, and it's, it's my, it's, it's such a surreal experience because every time I get really, really hyped up, I have to remind myself, of course, that Dave Wolverton passed away earlier this year. Yes. And his, or was it last year? It's been, uh, no, there, just, just recently, like uh, was, yeah, maybe a couple recently. of months ago. We're recording this in that. March of 2022. And so it's just so many times during this book, I, I had a moment where I'm just like, oh my God, this is so good. And then I realized, oh, that's right. But we may never get an ending on this. Probably we'll never get an ending on this. So we have to remember that as we go through. If, I, I'm sorry if I'm breaking this news to anybody somehow, if you haven't heard yet, but it's it's it really sucks because all of these deep universe magic things that are coming up are hyping me up so much. And I'm trying to temper myself with like, all right, you're going to leave off on a lot of open ends, Rob. You you know, don't don't invest yourself too much in how this all wraps up. So, yeah, I I don't know what the situation is going to be because, like you said, you know, it's unfinished. Uh, Wolverton was working on the final book at the time he passed away. I have heard through the grapevine that he was actually pretty close to finishing the first draft. He was like around 80% through. Um, 
And oh boy, what a time. And I have also heard that his son has kind of taken over some of his writing business things. Like uh, he's his his Facebook account is still posting stuff. Uh, his newsletter is still going out. Um, things like that. And, okay. and so maybe there's a possibility that we're going to get a, a Wheel of Time type situation here yeah. where Some, somebody is brought in to oh my God. Bennett. final book. Oh, give it to Bennett. Oh, uh, I could something. see, I would guess it would be one of his students. I'd guess it would be, uh, or or somebody from that kind of BYU legacy, maybe a Brian McClellan or, or somebody mm. like that, or Brent Weeks. Apparently he was friends with Brent Weeks. Interesting. Um. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Brandon Sanderson would be a great pick, but he's not going to do that. His time <laughs> yeah. is far too valuable, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Fine, but oh, he, oh my God! Even give it to Polanski. The dude can write. The <laughs> uh, but dude that's can such write. a different style, though. Like, <laughs> well, I don't know. There's there's a lot of dark going on here. Maybe we should move on to that well, for well, our, so our I, next style point. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, we could talk about the sure the content here. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> oh my God. The dark nature of some of these scenes, particularly, of course, like as you as we were talking about in our in our private chat, Drew, with the opening scenes, it's just it's so much more horrifying than I was preparing myself to read. Like, and I, I honestly didn't recall Lord, the Rune Lords being grim, dark, or graphic at all, which was obviously a mistake. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that had a lot to do with covering Kane and the Gap Cycle and Lowtown in the meantime, <laughs> and parts of the Black Company. But it did start coming back to me as well, of course, and then it went further than I remembered any of those oh, other yeah. authors writing. Like I was, I was shocked at a lot of what I was reading uncomfortably. So, which was clearly intentional, but I just, I had to write down, wow, Wolverton. Cause again, I've been hearing a lot of his, uh, uh, uh news about him passing away. And so I keep hearing Wolverton, Wolverton, Wolverton. So I'm going to keep going mm-hmm. back to Wolverton when I refer to him as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's just, Oh my goodness. It was crazy. It was absolutely disgusting. Yeah. So, um, I had I had of course read this book before, uh, but it, it had been a long, long time. And uh, as I was telling you in, in that chat, I didn't have an amazing memory of the details of this book. I had memories of sort of the broad strokes events, and then certain specific scenes that are just burned into my head. Uh, Eating the brain. them finding the girls in the tree. That was in my oh, head. In this book. Oh, uh, my God. Anders showing up outside the castle walls with the the three people impaled Human on the stakes. Yeah, that was that was burned into my head. Iome dying in the inn, that was burned into my head. Oh, that was. There graphic. are a couple other, couple other wasn't... scenes later in the book that I I have vivid memories of, but I did not remember that they had to like do a C section on Rihanna to yeah. to extract the eggs. Uh, I did not remember the scene where Rihanna is like. She has this like dream. She has nightmare about it. Where, where like, in, in, including the words like the the female stringy sot, like inserting yep. its ovipositor in her and nethers, and I was screaming like, screaming and blood and yeah, and, like, it's just it's so. Oh my god. Yeah, uh, there, there's some really graphic stuff in this that is mm-hmm. well beyond anything. Um, in the first four books. And, and I will say my memory of the, so I haven't read chaos bound. I have not read the eighth book. Oh, Um, I read like the first two chapters of it right when it came out. And I remember being a little put off by, um, 
uh, some of the, the premise of it. Um, uh, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, but I, I remember Worldbinder and the Wormling Horde also being pretty dark books. And, and that this goes along with that tonal shift after, after the, the kind of demarcation of sub series. But the first few chapters of Sons of the Oak always stood out to me as the darkest that he got. Yeah. And I'm curious to see if that holds up, if my memory is, is correct on that. I'll be relieved if it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty rough. Yeah. Pretty rough. Um, as far as, since we're still in style, I'll say there are clear yeah. moments of extended exposition slash info dumps, depending on where your delineation is that they're, they're very distinct and easy to predict. And in some parts, they totally hype me up. Like, for example, the build up to Hadassah's redemption or whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. But in I, in other scenes, particularly with like, it happens a lot with this omniscient narrator style. I would mm-hmm. imagine it's a lot easier to fall into that rut. There's entire paragraphs of exposition that are about how these children are playing their little game. Like, you're the fool or however that game yeah. was going. And it, it had a whole paragraph Village or two idiot. paragraphs about the rules of that game. And I could tell what that paragraph was going to be after the first sentence. And I just went, nah. I'm just going to skip this one. And I did skip it, you know? So it was in the middle of like a fraught conversation between Falion and Iome, where they're talking about the loci and kind of the nature of evil. And and like, can you kill a locust? That was probably involved. Like if I was just like sending myself there, I'd be like, yeah, I'll read this, but you're right. That's the reason I probably skipped it. It's like here, here, let's ignore Iome's answer for two paragraphs. So we can talk about this children's game Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then we're going to get right back into it. Like it's, it was, it's a little herky jerky, and and this this omniscient narrator, as you said, is the biggest style thing I have to talk yeah, about. It's pretty jarring at times. <laughs> yeah, uh, he he allowed himself to do a little bit of this, a little bit of head hopping in the first four books, but not very much. And here it is all over the place. Like this is Doom level head hopping. <laughs> like yeah. where where hey i'm glad you brought up dune we'll be talking about dune later believe me <laughs> oh interesting yeah. yes um it, i did not remember this uh granted the last time i read this book uh i was like really just starting to take my writing seriously and like i was in college i was probably a freshman or sophomore and what does that mean? I know what the freshman first is like or a, second year, first or second year in college, so, a sophomore, second year. Yeah. Freshman, oh. sophomore. Oh, you just answered senior. a question I've had yeah. for like 20 years. Thank you. Um, we don't use those like, terms. So I was just really learning about the, the tools of writing. I had never thought about point of view in that way before. So when I was reading this, oh, of course I didn't, notice that i was just reading the story right mm. and that's where i'm at and now here i'm like whoa this is this is jarring <laughs> yeah 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 although I, I feel like i'm gonna get used to it pretty quickly um yeah yeah i mean it's, it's like it's not my favorite style i much prefer the close third person limited style of course mm-hmm. you know as has been the vast majority of all my experience growing up but you know, I can, I can see uh, Wolverton is not 
jarring me with it to the point where I am considering the style and and pulling myself out of the story. Um, I'm actually, I should say I am, but it's because I have three years of experience bringing these things up for a podcast. So I have something to talk about with Drew McCaffrey, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't think I w- it would be that big of a deal if I, um, you know, hadn't been hosting a podcast. It's just something I pick up on now, but yeah. Oh boy. Was it, was it definitely standing out now that I know to look for these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, it it still hasn't killed the book for me. Obviously, I mean, oh my goodness, right. this is I I'm having so much fun in this book, and just uh, another thing I want to talk. My last style point is are just these these short chapters from the points of view of our antagonists. Mm-hmm. These, aside from the clearly amazing prologue, I already glowed about. We have scenes like chapter fifteen, for example, which are so short, so foreboding. Do all of his defeats taste like victories? Yes, of course. Excellent. I'll greet him with open arms. It's like, yes, uh, I, I'm so hyped in these moments, and I'm super excited to go forward. So yeah, like it, it seems, you know, there's always this this kind of duality to to storytelling, and that's style versus substance, right? And I think this book unintentionally provides a great contrast for what we just read with Lowtown, where it, it was the style of Lowtown that was the strength. It was, you know, the the prose, the word choices, the turns of phrase that really carried that series mm-hmm. uh, over the actual events and themes in it. In my opinion, and I think in your opinion as well. I very Here, much agree. it's the opposite. Like, it's very much the substance over the style. Like, <sighs> But the, the, are there any compromises with style? I mean, I guess, could you consider this a compromise with style or a weak point in style where it's just like, you know, something that Wolverton finds himself more comfortable with? Like, I don't know if, like, I'm hesitant to possibly. call it like a, a drawback in style. Uh, so there are a couple of things that have been standing out to me. Maybe the, the fact that it's handled a little awkwardly. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, the more than, more than I remember in, in the first four books there, I'm noticing lots of spots where he repeats himself in, in a very short span, like almost word for word. Oh, um, I, of course I'm reading in my like actual physical, Hard first edition hardcover. Ooh, uh, can I get and... a glimpse of this baby? Let me see this. Oh, whoa! What yeah, that? that's um, nice. I mean, I took the dust jacket off, obviously, but uh, as you do, you're you're not it, barbarian. So, like, I don't I don't have like notes and highlights the way I do with with my Kindle, but I did remember one page. It was on one eighteen, and this is after in the aftermath of their their fight with Asgaroth on the river. Ooh. And Rihanna's in the river with Murama. And Murama's, you know, like trying to do her like healing runes thing. Um in this paragraph. Uh Murama cupped a hand, raised it, and let some icy water dribble over Rihanna's forehead. Rihanna arched her neck, and it felt as if the water was not just pouring down upon her, but flowing into her filling her mind and washing away the weariness and fear that she had borne for days now, for weeks. Two chapters after that, there, so there's that paragraph, and then Murama says two lines of dialogue, and then, 
Rihanna stood, neck arched, as Murma dipped her hands again and again, letting water dribble on Rihanna's forehead. It seemed not to run down her so much as through her. Almost word for word, the mm. exact same thing. Like, so it doesn't feel like neck arched. Or anything. It, it felt as if the water was not just pouring down upon her, but through her. Like, see, I actually wrote down this exact same scene for another reason too, and I didn't bring it up. I decided transcribing my notes from phone to PC. I was like, nah, it's not just bring up. I'm not gonna bring that up. But it, it was about the scene. What I what took me back a little bit was the fact that uh, it felt a little hand wavy to me. It's like, well, you're just you're 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 kind of just giving a whole lot of really vague descriptions on, on how these are supposed to be life-changing kind of feelings and how they change the character's perspective in this moment. I wasn't considering the monotony of the actual language itself yeah. or the repetition of the language itself. I didn't pick up on that. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and there's actually an example of my other biggest uh, criticism, um, and that's the way Wolverton likes using metaphors. Do you have this on Kindle? I'm, I have like, this on audiobook and I have it on uh, my e-reader. Or, or, yeah, e-reader you have it right on next to me. Yeah, so sorry, you could my, look uh, up to see yes, how many times in, in the book. Hit me with Search it, my brother. Search for as if. Oh, <laughs> okay. As space if. I'm very curious to see how many times this occurs. 53. 53 times. 53 times. He loves setting up metaphors where he says, you know, X, Y, Z happened as if. Drew, he's got like 15 or 20 in the first chapter. Yeah, it's, it was jarring. (laughs) Holy crap. Yeah. Oh my God, Drew, not 53. It's page one of 53. (laughs) And five per page. It's 265 times. Yeah. It is jarring. How often he look at it. This. That's it right there at the bottom. It says, "Oh, you, you, oh that resolution is going to be crap." There, page yeah. two. Or I'm on page six of fifty-three with five examples per page. Yeah, <gasps> <laughs> bro, you just ruined that part of the book for me. This gonna, <laughs> you realize that now for the entire second half of this book, there's going to be approximately every hold time. On now. Every time you yeah, use this, oh. as if, you're going to be like, oh, yep. <laughs> oh, no, Drew. There's going to be like 135 times that I go, oh, damn it, Drew. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Sorry, but like <laughs> it, it it leapt out. It didn't just stand out. It leapt out at me. Like how much he relies on oh, my this God. sentence construction. That's going to be an ink his podcast highlight. The moment that Rob realizes it wasn't 53 times. It was 53 pages yeah. of times. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. Wow. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, that wraps up all my style points. How about you? Um I I have one I, it's not necessarily a style point, but a Toss it up. a story point. Okay. And it's something I I've tried really 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 hard to just like ignore and and say like all right, I'm going to move on with the story. Are you going to ignore ruin this for me too? Phileon is 9 years old. Yeah. Well, and slightly less, Brianna's she, nine years old, but she has an endowment of metabolism, so she physically oh, yeah. is like she's thirteen. And Jazz yeah. is is a little like four less months than younger, nine but he old. doesn't have the yeah. yet. Gaborn dies when they're nine. Mm-hmm. At the end of Lair of Bones, Gaborn has fifty endowments of metabolism. He ages at fifty times the speed. Oh, and. 
at like a, one of the last pages of Lair of Bones, it's just over a year after the battle at, at Kessel Karras, and he visits with Borenson and Murama and Iome for the last time, and he says, I will not live out the winter. Oh. Well, that's a glaring mistake. Obviously, there might not be a mistake. There might be a reason for it, but that's... How did I not pick up on that? Oh my yeah, God, like there's there's definitely a consistency thing where like Gaborn would be like 480 years old functionally uh, at the beginning of this book because of his endowments and metabolism. Okay. Maybe his other endowments can keep him alive for longer, but then all, all other real no, lords like, would have that same benefit, so that it would make sense. Like they they do talk about how endowments of stamina can sort of offset it but not that much not to that you're um, right though and be and they, 50 years and for everyone he specifically years. talks about it at the end of lara bones where he's been gone for a year and he shows back up and he's like gone like completely gray and his face is all craggy oh. and like yeah i can extrapolate that because the fact that you're confused about this tells me that we don't get an answer for this by at least by book eight or whatnot so that's good well, oh, well okay. <laughs> it, yeah it, it's that I guess it's not really like, I'm, yeah, it's not a major plot it, point. It's but just still, weird how do you to think me. somebody it feels like, like something Overton uh, forgot would read the last pages or chapters of his fourth <laughs> book before starting his fifth book at yeah, the time? You're yeah. right. That seems like a very glaring thing to miss. It seems like there has to be a reason for it, and we just don't know it yet. Because otherwise, that would be a huge mistake. Like, what the hell, mistake? <laughs> yeah, it's it's okay. very strange, and I've just been kind of trying to be like, all right, whatever. He he had a continuity error. I'm just going to move assume on. It doesn't more. really affect the story that much. Maybe just he needed Gaborn to be alive for for this one bit at the beginning of the book, so he can send his final warnings about going to the ends of the earth. Um, Maybe the fact but, that he was half plant meant that his metabolism on that side slowed down so much. No, I'm just <laughs> reaching at this point. <laughs> but oh, uh, characters, Falian. Should we just start about Falian then? Sure. Since we're loosely on him, I'm a little yeah. ambivalent about Falian, and I'll explain. Maybe you can uh-huh. help me figure something out about my opinions here, Drew, because um, I have some cognitive dissonance going on here. This I probably agree with you. Yeah, the dude clearly has in-world reasons. The dude being Falian has in-world reasons for being as good at everything as he is. There's whatever mystery the Sons of the Oak phenomenon is building up to. There's some sort of deep magic set right with the world, symmetry and beauty and presence coming together. He's also had the, he, he's thought about this, the, the benefit of having the best instructors for every subject possible. And truth be told, his overwhelming competence at everything itself is not bothering me. Uh-huh. I like that there's an in-world mysterious something going on with his whole generation that's already wonky. And of course, Falion being the Earth's king's son, besides that, on top of that, I can accept it. It's not, it, but what, what, what's confusing me is I need to take a step back and make sure that I acknowledge or try and at least pick apart why it is that Paul Atreides from Dune, for example, was for many of these same hmm. reasons such a blat, uh, a flat and boring, ca- blat, flat and boring character for me, because I had absolutely no inclination to read the rest of Dune after we covered the first book of Dune, mostly right. because I despised the main characters just being uncharacteristically good at everything and constantly pulling solutions from their ass, which Falian seems to be doing as well. So why does it bother me in one character? and not in the other. And I tried to come up with an answer for this, and this is the closest I got. I'm thinking it's largely due to the fact that Falian's particular competence has a larger mystery that's marinating under the surface, and, and obviously under the surface, like Sons of the Oak and the Earth King's Son. He's prophesied to boot. 
But then I'm thinking, damn, the Bane Gesserate and Dune were doing a lot of the same thing for Paul. So what gives? I, I, I really can't figure out my own opinion. Uh, just from what I remember of our Dune episode and then talking through this, I think it may just come down to the fact that you're way more into the lore and world building of this series than you were in Dune. And that's helping carry everything else. Hmm. My investment you're in the more world willing to forgive one. things because you're enjoying the story more. I suppose, but I don't know. I was the, the story wasn't really too much of my. Oh, it, was, it was it was in Dune. Uh, it's weird to talk about. We were talking about Dune earlier. It was just Paul was just so good at everything, and there was no real sense of like, oh no, he's going. He he's in danger at this point, or he's not going to uh, succeed here. With with Falion, everything feels every. Every encounter, particularly when he's confronting Asgaroth for the first time and he cuts his own hand and he orders yeah. the archers to fire and whatnot. I'm in one moment, I, I'm at such a cognitive dissonance in this moment because I'm like, yes, this is so freaking cool. And on the other hand, I'm going, how does he know to do this? Why am I okay with this? And I'm thinking, oh, there are deeper world building reasons this that I am invested in these this sons of the oak phenomenon, why all these children of this generation are so perfect and what's going on with the world itself as it is healing from whatever the hell happened. Yeah. That I didn't really have that. I suppose you know, I gotta say, I'm fascinated that you're fixating so much on the aspects of Falion you are, and you haven't mentioned the torchbearer at all. Okay, well, the, the like, bear, I, I said the prophesied, right? Like, there's King Sun prophesied. Yeah, yeah. That, at, like, but, the halfway point, uh, Smokey, that's or the Smoker. biggest mystery to me, is, like, what is going on with his, like, Flame Weaver stuff? Like, the, Smoker see, tells I, him, you have this ancient soul. What are you doing in this young body? Oh, you no, know, I mean, like, he's the Earth King's son. He's going to be special in some way beyond everything else. I was already taking that for granted, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like that, that's already uh, presupposed that I'm already way invested on that. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I just, uh, I don't know. And uh, speaking on it, you talk about his apparent abilities coming up as a flame weaver. I, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that that's a misdirect hmm. or, or at least he's not just a flame weaver. I think he's going to have way more than that. Okay. But that's just an, it's just a feeling that I have. I, I don't know. All right. So I, I don't have the same cognitive dissonance about him as you do, apparently. Like, I, I don't have a problem with him being, like, so good because he really isn't that good at things. He, when you brought up that, that comparison with Paul, where you felt like every situation he was in, you just knew he was going to succeed. Mm-hmm. And with, with Falion, you don't feel like that. The danger feels very present. Uh, through the first half of this book, um, especially during the escape from the castle. And it's because Falion, A, he's really young. He's nine years old. Paul is an adult. He's, he's a young adult, you know. You think that would make it a bigger issue um, for me, though. Hmm. But Falion can't do things by himself yet. He needs the people around him to step up to get him through things. He's still learning. Whereas True. Paul comes like already competent. He's In got book the book one, as opposed already. to book yeah. five, where you have all this context around these uh-huh. phenomena around. And, and so sure. it, it doesn't feel to me like Falion is some, you know, Gary Stu 
just traipsing through life it where like he's so at good at everything that, oh, oh of course he's going to get through this because so many of the things he doesn't get through, the people around him gets him through it, if that makes sense. Uh, but but where my dissonance is, Ooh, is that he's here. nine years old. And he does not feel like a nine-year-old. Well, he's not supposed to. He's one of the sons of the oak. That's the whole point. His whole phen- his whole generation is like a superhero, so, right? They they are and more perfect. Kid. They are slightly more perfect human beings, but that doesn't yes. mean they're just like automatically adults. He has moments of childishness. That's the yeah. But it's the torchbearer part, the Earth King's son part, right? <sighs> The fact that he's a son of the oak and he all he's also the Earth King's son, he might be just like a prodigy amongst them, it's, even. It's his attitude. Uh, it's his attitude toward things that know, feels very mature. Exactly. That there, doesn't oh my. jive with him being a nine-year-old, especially because Jazz is only four months younger, and Jazz feels like he's like five years younger. Well, yeah, and they make constant reference to that yeah. point too as well and you know a moment where that in particular what you're talking about really stuck out to me was when he went to um he he figured out that the the strangi sat was just a mother and it was going to go and try and get its babies back and he went to go save rihanna in like chapter four yeah. mm-hmm. i think it was and he realized he had this moment of introspection once where he realized this is what i see something disgusting in these membranous eggs that are trying to eat this poor girl's insides but what does the strangi sat see She's a mother who's terrified for her offspring. She has this biological drive for protection. He had that thought in the middle of everything hitting the fan. Right, yeah. So that, what you're talking about, really, really definitely stuck out to me in that particular moment, for sure. Yeah. I noticed it there, for sure. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's like a fatal flaw of the book for me or anything. I'm still absolutely enjoying this. Uh, I can't remember if I mentioned this on a podcast before. Uh, I probably did, but my memory of the first eight or first seven books that I read back in the day was that this was my single favorite book in the series. And I think it's already mine. And, and I'm curious to see if I have the same impression at the end. I absolutely still think this is the best opening, like the best first act of any books, you know, so far on our, on our reread and coverage on inking out loud. Hell yes. Yeah. So, um, you know what really cemented who Fallion was for me this early in the series? There was this moment in chapter 17 when he asks the other children, do you want to join my army? Mm-hmm. And they just give him this these bunch of blank stares and they're like, no, we're playing rope and pony or whatever the hell game it was. Yeah, yeah. There's that moment of cognitive separation. The, the, the fact that Wolverton takes this moment to to demonstrate this, this vastly different level of reality that Fallion is experiencing compared to the one that his peers are living in. That one really struck home for me. And that one really cemented who he was. And I got a feeling for his character in this moment in a way that I hadn't yet. So I had to bring that up. That's that was, that was really cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All Uh, right. Other characters. What do you think of Rihanna? Okay. So I was sus on Rihanna from the beginning, not sus that I think she's evil yet or bad in, in any way, but just, I mean like, I knew something was off from the start. We got points of view from Rihanna that were clearly too mature for a child of her supposed age as well. Um, yeah, we like we found out she's got an endowment of metabolism. Mm-hmm. She's still too aware of her surroundings and what the adults are doing and communicating around her. We have this, pardon me, this beers make me burp a lot. Her mysterious past, 
her, her rune working, all of that was clearly setting something up. But correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, sorry, I had written this down before you did in your summary. Um, seeing everyone's disgust with King Anders, and I was totally forgetting that was one of the main characters. I had forgot who Anders was from the original uh, original series. So I went back and looked up my summaries, and I was like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah. And in this moment, I was going, oh, but Aaron Connell, what happened to Aaron Connell? So we did learn that Aaron Connell is Rihanna's mother. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you had also yes. said that. Selenor Anders was her father. You you mentioned that in yes. your intro, and I I think at one point I went oh <laughs> really quiet. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's something going on with Rihanna. Getting back to Rihanna, her trauma is going to stay with her. My I predict and have very negative manifestations in the future. I think she's going to do one of two things: she's going to turn very dark, or she's going to go straight up pistols at dawn over her insane <laughs> loyalty to Fally, and she's going to get herself killed or some for something Ooh. foolish. I think okay. it'll be the second. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, all I will say about her is that my memory of this second half of the series is that she's my favorite of the main characters. Cool. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Good, good to know. She is by far the most interesting, I think. Hell yeah. Of the, the next generation. I'm so stoked. I have my book right here. I can't wait to get right back to it. Um, <laughs> And I actually, I have to confess, I did kind of accidentally read ahead for this week, just slightly. Yeah, no, that's fine. I ended up texting Drew and I was like, hey, were you supposed to stop at chapter 25 or chapter 26? Because <laughs> I just realized I'm at page 300 out of like 530 in my book. And you're like, oh, chapter 22. <laughs> Going, oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoops. So I've read a, a, like about three chapters ahead. Might be everybody. I'm just yeah, so, whatever. I just, I didn't even realize it. It was so good, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, that's um, a sign of, yeah, that's a good sign for the yes. book. Iomi. Let's talk about Iomi. Yeah. She's so amazing in her life. Heartbreaking. Days. Her fierce commitment to her children and her commitment to her ideals. Like this incredible heroism and her stoic approach to death in general. She's uncompromising. She's unyielding. She's vulnerable still. She's vulnerable. She's not perfect, but she's confident. And her her final scene there made me cry for the first time. And I don't know. I, I think I may have cried once in the Dresden Files. I definitely cried at the end of City of Blades. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> definitely, and I cried here. I'll admit it. Gaborn welcoming her into the beyond. Mm -hmm. You know her hesitance over leaving her. Such children. a great scene. And I'm going to cry right now if we don't move the fuck on. So <laughs> but, that yeah. that scene, or no, it's not even that scene for me. It's a beautiful scene. Don't get me wrong, but the thing that really struck me, uh, and this is absolutely a product of me just being older. You know, like the last time I read this book, I was probably like 19, maybe 20. Oh my goodness. And I'm oh about to God. turn 32. Okay. You know, I very, very different stages in my life. And there's an almost throwaway line where she talks, she mentions that she is not yet 25. Oh my God. So at 25 to you back then was like, oh yeah, that's that's a full that's a grown up right there. Yeah. And now at 32 you're like, oh my god. And she is an old woman who dies of old age at the age of 24. A life well lived according and to then, her days. And then you you don't get the same impact from Gaborn even though he also dies really young. He's you know, he's a couple of years older, but he dies in his mid 20s. But he he just feels larger than life. He he feels mythical because yeah. he is. He's the Earth yeah. King. He's literally a mythical. They have figure. effigies to him, of course. But Ayome is just a woman. She's a queen. She's a mother. 
And it was heartbreaking when I stopped and just thought about that. Like, Mm -hmm. she's a 24-year-old young woman who has had to deal with so much in a short life and had her youth, had the prime of her life stripped away from her. She had more living done in 24 years than even most fantasy characters get done in 80. It really is spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's the one that really struck what, me. Really, you know what, what it was for some weird reason. It was Borenson as she was telling him she was she was holding Falion, and he was asleep, and she was talking to Borenson, and she said, "I think this is it. I think this is my yeah. time." And in his reaction to that, and how much respect it had, yeah, was just oh my god. And then, of course, we, then then we get into the scene where she's meeting Gaborn and there's this warm light and she's hesitating about her kids. And in that whole scene, I'm just like at the end of Titanic when Rose is walking up <laughs> to meet Jack. And I'm just like, oh, God, Lord, help me. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm a I'm a mushy at times. It happens. Yeah. But it's it's really, really, it's, it's so well done. And I, I also love this moment of just, re, uh, just, ex, just, exposing that she had when she was talking um about their father to to Fallian and jazz and, and, and mm. especially to Fallian, she was saying we made a sacrifice of him because he was too honorable to do it himself you yeah. know a line like that in fantasy alone to, to to just pull that off is so so amazing but <laughs> to have it mean so much to someone like iomi in what turned out to be her last days of life were just it's just such good writing. It's so amazing. It, it, it is literally, it is no wonder that someone like Wolverton ends up inspiring someone who turns out to be Brandon Sanderson, you know, like, ah, it's so good. Yep. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, just, just the, the little things like Borenson says, good night. And she says, I think this is goodbye. Yes. Uh, thank you. You you found the line I was I was trying to take. Yes. Uh. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so, uh, any other characters you want to talk about? Waggett, really quickly. Waggett. I oh, forgot man. about Waggett. I totally forgot who Waggett was. He was another one I forgot about until I went back and reread and everything. And I just gotta say, Waggett is so badass. Waggett's great. It's, this is that whole battle sequence, particularly that sequence when he rips the so- the arrow from his own gut. That soldier does li- ri- like from his own gut, licks the blood, trying to be macho and wag. It's just like that one's mine, and he charges yeah. right for him. Two on this, and he through his head, <laughs> and then that final mockery. He's like, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. He pulls it out, the arrow out of himself, and licks it just to mock the dude. I'm just like, yeah. Wagon is such a freaking savage man. I like this guy, and then of course and seeing he's a someone nerd. like. Seeing someone like Fallion constantly refer to lessons they have from Waggett, it's just like, yep. oh, this guy is really legit too. You know, it's like he's like a a really badass male Cadswain. You know, cool. yeah, like he's we see him as an unintentional superhero. In, yeah, in the second and third books, and then we get points of view from him. I think in the fourth book, where he's we get inside his head before he has his endowments of wit and it's awful. It's heartbreaking. Oh no. So it would have been the third book because he, he joins them um, during the hunt for the Reavers at the end of the third book and he meets Scalbaron and that's how he meets his wife because his wife is Scalbaron's 
sister slash daughter. Any of this. That's right. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, where she is also slow of wit and, and, you know, Scalabarin's like, you know, I'm about to go have my suicide charge. I, I have disgraced myself because I slept with my own mother and begot my own sister. Uh, but I love her. I love my sister. Take good care of her. I think you of all these people will understand her because you once were like her, you know, and it's like, there's a lot of tragedy in Waggett's storyline. And then to see him now where he has a loving family and a daughter and he has moved beyond just being like a, a big brute of a guy who's Amen. slow and dumb, but, but very strong. And now he's like one of the wisest, kindest people in all of Rofhaven. You're like, hell yeah, Waggett, you go, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, you nailed it. You go, man. <laughs> Fist pump on his behalf. Every time he's on the page. It's so, it's so much fun. Yeah. Rewarding. Yeah. Um, that's all of my characters for now that I have to talk about. I don't have anything about Mirama yet. Nothing about Asgaroth, Shadowath, nothing yet. So, uh, yeah, okay, okay. Miscellaneous? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's head into miscellaneous points. I just got one, and I want to say Hadassah was a serious champ, and he went out like a champ. Okay, what'd you think of, uh, Demara? I thought she was gonna have more to, she, she died in, like, chapter four? Yeah. I was like, what that like like uh, Gaborn met her Chapter in five. Landis Fallen, yeah. I think. Um, n- not in Landis Fallen, but out out southeast somewhere, way out exotic, and I don't know. Like I thought she was going to be. I was like, oh, this is a clear mentor character with how she was introduced, and she's going to be with them for the whole series and teach them how to be tough and offer all kinds of exotic, different ways to view things, and it's she's going to be quirky and it's going to be fun. And she gets impaled. I was. It was. Yeah. It was very unexpected. It really was. The so the thing that really got me with the impalings was Shamwaz. Mm. That poor girl did not deserve that, man. The... Like that was sad. None of like nobody did anybody really deserve that. But you're right. You like it's extra tragic on her behalf too, because yeah. of, of the context we have. Just like she was great, she was one of my favorite kind of minor characters in the first four books. I like to think that that writers reserve this thing to do where it's just like, and they don't even tell their readers. They just go, "Yep, I will wave my hand and say this character felt nothing at that point." You know? Yeah. Good lord. Yeah. Uh, like there were there were two just horribly awful deaths. Just just the injustice, and and I feel those are Shamois and Humphrey. I was waiting to get to Humphrey. Yep, that was my last guy. So um, I gotta say this. Uh, with Humphrey, that that scene affected me a lot more. Like, I didn't even remember about Humphrey. Like, that that was how little I cared. Really? Back, back in the day. But, uh, you know, I read that scene... I don't know, about an hour before we sat down to record this. And it was rough. And a big part of why it was rough is that last night I made the mistake of watching uh, a Netflix documentary 
called Don't F*** With Cats. And uh, I, I don't know if uh, how many people have heard about this thing, but it, it's a three-part, like a three-episode, three-hour true crime documentary about this, this Canadian guy named Luca Magnata. And Why have I heard that name? He uh, he lived in Toronto. He he killed a dude in Toronto and videotaped it name. and put it on the internet. Jesus, this was back in like I think 2012. Um, but the whole thing with him started because he started uploading videos killing kittens, and it was. Like they obviously in the documentary, they don't show the whole video of, of any of them, but they show like little clips from the beginning. And it was one of the most horrible things I've ever seen. Like I'm going to be haunted by that for a long time. I, I should not have watched that thing. It's on Netflix. And yeah, it was on Netflix. Um, and then, and then I read the scene where Streben catches Humphrey and then just like rings him out and kills him. Yeah. Well, like for me, it was like, like the horror was, was her hearing it first and she didn't see what it yeah. was. She just watched him go out and then she just heard a crunch and a squeal. I was like the, the a moment like that is like so much confusion and horror is like, yeah, my goodness. Yeah. That was, that was awful. That scene was really awful. Well, yeah, that's just like, I, like this book's dark, man. It like, really is. <laughs> and it sets up, uh, I guess, a justification for us to enjoy watching Streben get knifed and tossed into the water. And obviously, yeah. clearly, he's the reason that Asgaroth is going to find them and catch up to them, right? Like, they found him in the water, and he's giving them intel as to who these boys are and who they're traveling with, right? Because that ship's been chasing them for days to weeks now. He does that smug grin on your face. All right, cool. Shall we go we into the final draft? Do you have any, any other uh, miscellaneous points? Yeah, yeah. So, so let's head into the final draft. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I'll start this one off. Okay. Um, because I'm, of course, not drinking uh, a beer, but I am drinking, I think, a, a kind of uh, appropriately named um, beverage. So I'm drinking an elderflower tonic water. Elderflower uh, tonic water. It's it's really good. I had a little squirt of lime in it. Pretty darn tasty. But it's called Fever Tree, Ooh. and uh, and I, I it just made me think of the tree that they find, you know, all the girls in. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, get you, get you. Yeah, yeah. Rob, what about you? What are you drinking? I'm drinking a little brew from Hop City Brewing Company. I. I don't remember if I've actually, I think I have uh, brought this on the episode on the, on the inking out loud before, but we have recorded so many episodes at this point that I'm not entirely certain. Um, this is a, and I quote from the back here, this is an Amber lager roasted caramel and toffee craft with attitude in a nutshell, balancing act of noble, hot bitterness and roasted caramel malt sweetness. You get that caramel malt in there so much. As soon as I opened this and I started drinking this during Drew's recap, I was going, mm. This is amazing. I, I'm definitely going to be buying this a lot more. It's only 5% ABV, so it goes down very, very easily. Um, but this is a brew that I have dedicated to, as you can see on the front here with a little bit of art there, Drew. And even though um, he does whistle more than he than anything else, this is called Barking Squirrel. 
Nice. And this is for Humphrey, who died in such a way that I was not ready for. R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah, I, I literally have my, my final draft for here in my notes just says R.I.P. Humphrey. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I found that yeah. there. Barking Squirrel, and it was delicious. It was actually incredible. So that's what I've been drinking. Nice. Well, yeah, and and so we're, we're also bringing on Lauren. Uh, she's drinking. Hell yeah, we are. The, the real beer here. Lauren, welcome back. <laughs> Sup? What you All got? All right. So this is another barley wine. Again, Ooh, barley <laughs> just like wine. last week, only not quite as strong. And and it's an English style ale. Um, so this one actually though comes from Loveland, Colorado, which is really close to us, and it's a brewery called Verboten Brewing. And verboten in German is forbidden. Yeah, I think oh. I think I've had some verboten on the podcast before, but I'm not a hundred percent certain. Seeing the word, somewhere. in fact, I actually think I may have had a different variant of this beer. Probably for something. I'm trying to remember what it would have been though. I recognize the word verboten. I don't know where the hell I've seen that yeah. before, but I recognize the word. But yeah, so so that's in reference to uh, Germany's Reinheitsgebot, which was their their purity law regarding mm, beer. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Um, but basically, they break the rules. <laughs> nice, nice. And this one was actually the owner's wedding beer. Yeah. Whoa. So very very special for them. Um, What's the ABB on that? It is 14.2%. Oh, I've never tried a beer that strong. Never. Oh, my God. Really? Never. Oh I've gosh, never had anything yeah. past we 8%, have, I think. Never. Wow. We've got to have you try some, actually. <laughs> some yeah, some strong really ales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know we've said it many times, but when when you manage to make it down here to visit us in Colorado, we're going to... Mm. We're definitely going to crack open some of the. I can feel my liver trembling in fear right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. uh, Honestly, like, this is big, but not that big anymore. Like, I had a, I had a twenty-one percent beer today, at work. You mean rubbing alcohol? (laughs) No. No. You opened like good lord bottles or something. Uh no, coworker brought something in. Twenty one percent. Yeah, what was twenty one percent? That's literally more than a fifth. Crazy. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, so so. I mean, flammable. <laughs> the the reason why this is so high is because it's you know wood aged, so you've got this really strong yeast that you're leaving in a barrel for at least a year, and allowing it to really the yeast to really eat all of those residual sugars and up the alcohol content. Yeah. And this one um, was aged in bourbon barrels. And then it sounds like they added staves of Amberana wood, which is a a Brazilian type of wood that's gotten really popular in beer because it kind of tastes like cinnamon. It's got a nice little spice to it. Yeah, it's like a seasonal kind of. It's a South American wood, and I don't. know, it, It's weird. Brazilian, I, or yeah, I don't. I don't like Amberana aged beers, even though 
I do like, you know, like I, or I don't mind cinnamon flavor. Um, it can definitely be overdone in beers. Like mm. I've, I've had a couple of beers that for sure overdid it. Um, but it's, it's not that there's just like, you get that cinnamon and then there's some other flavor in it that they just, throw them all together, like an allspice or a nutmeg or flips, a... that flips the switch for me where I, I just can't enjoy Ambarana aged beers. It's weird. I don't know. I Dang. like them. Yeah. And they became popular in like 2018 uh, when uh, a beer aged on Ambarana wood won the GABF category for yeah. wood aged beers. So everybody's been doing it. Um, that's great american beer festival yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) so this uh this beer the name uh this one goes out to gaborn and iome oh you're gonna break my heart hopefully in in their life as shades uh in in the forests of herodon they get to do what they didn't have the opportunity to do in life and that is grow old with you oh my god that is uh, <laughs> you see why it was their wedding beer bro so sweet i'm gonna start yeah. crying what are you doing to me dog <laughs> <laughs> yeah thinking yeah out loud drew and lauren break rob's heart <laughs> oh my god oh man very wonderfully done very nice yeah so that brings us to the end of our episode this has been episode 163 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we're going to be finishing off Sons of the Oak. We're going to be continuing right on in uh, to the second half of the Rune Lords. As always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on Coffee ko-fi.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, we got all kinds of bonus content on Patreon, and, and if you don't want to do a subscription thing, you know, you can do a one-time donation on coffee. Uh, that money helps us pay for things like our software web hosting. Um, it, it's really what has allowed us to keep this podcast going for, as Rob said at the beginning of the episode over three years now, uh, it is, it's pretty incredible. And we're very grateful to all the generous listeners Absolutely. and supporters. Mm-hmm. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. And our final draft guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Once again, thank you. Yeah. And if you are interested in learning more about the history of beer and kind of just the whole process of beer and beer styles and stuff, check out Lauren's podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it's called Novice's Guide to Beer Styles. And I, I really wanted to make it a good educational resource for people who wanted to know more like I do. So. Sweet kind of kind of help in that area yeah lauren's Hell a nerd yeah. i'm a nerd yeah it, i know that's a shot some beers. to our listeners that i married a nerd <laughs> wow <laughs> um but yeah yeah so check out novice's guide to beer styles if you're interested in learning more about beer but uh yeah for now thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time bye bye